Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. We're in store for another busy week on Capitol Hill as the House plans votes to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act, remove U.S. forces from Yemen's civil war, and condemn the Trump administration's request to strike down the Affordable Care Act in court. Welcome to Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Danielle Parnas. Over in the Senate, votes are planned on a $13.4 billion disaster aid package and on a move from Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to accelerate nomination votes. But this episode will focus on the Obamacare and Violence Against Women Act votes. We're joined now by Noreen Chowdhury and Adam Shank from the BGov Legislative Analyst Team to talk about VAWA. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. The 1994 Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, lapsed on February 15th, though most of its programs were funded for the year in the fiscal 2019 spending deal. Noreen, what exactly does VAWA do? So VAWA provides grants, mostly through the Justice Department, to states, local and tribal governments, higher education institutions, and other groups to prevent and respond to domestic violence, dating violence, sexual assault, and stalking. These federal grant programs provide victims with critical assistance, such as housing and legal services, and it also supports training for law enforcement, prosecutors, and other professionals that deal with these cases, whether in a legal, health care, or social capacity. This bill, in particular, would authorize more than a billion annually through fiscal 2024 for those programs. This bill goes beyond just reauthorizing the programs, though, and includes some uh, more controversial items. Uh, Tell us about those. Right. So first, this bill would expand what are known as red flag gun control measures. Specifically, it would bar any individual convicted of a misdemeanor stalking crime or subject to a court order from possessing a firearm. And what this does is it builds on precedent set by several states, including D.C., which have adopted similar measures that allow families and law enforcement officers to petition to block a person's access to firearms if they pose a serious threat. Second, the FBI's National Instant Criminal Background Check System, also known as NICS, would have to notify law enforcement agencies if it determines a firearm was sold to any of those convicted individuals. And similarly, it would have to alert those agencies if an attempt to purchase a firearm was denied. These provisions have gotten pushback from Republicans in the House and the Senate. Adam, tell us about that. It's pretty interesting. Um, like Nareen alluded to, the, about 29 states have these sorts of red flag provisions in place already. And this bill would sort of you know, model a federal kind of version of that. But What we heard last week and was reported was that some uh, Republican staffers on the Hill had reached out to the NRA to issue a key vote alert against the bill based on the red flag provisions. And a lot of times there's some sort of discussion about, you know, what what interest groups are, are looking for. And that's sort of the whole point of like the lobbying kind of industry. But to kind of have it reported like that was very eyebrow raising. On the other side of the bill, though, the supporters are, are exactly who you think they are. You know, I'm sure we'll see a lot of groups come out this week in support of it as the House tees up its votes and and starts to consider amendments. And that'll be an interesting part of the debate as well as as how many amendments are made in order and and what 
those amendments include uh, and if they will sort of expand or or sort of tweak some of the provisions in the bill. And part of the gun language, there was also um, some potential funding for states to set up programs where you could recover guns from those people as well. Is that part of the conversation too? Yeah, I imagine it will be. And that is part of that. The, the primary grant program under the bill, which is the Justice Department Stop Grants, the bill would expand the allowable uses of those funds for states and local law enforcement agencies to kind of develop and implement those procedures to both obtain and, and store those weapons as well as return them if a person some becomes eligible to possess a firearm again. If they're, they're cleared or, or found um, you know, that they've done nothing wrong, then, then they become eligible again. Some other language in the bill that Republicans oppose has to do with transgender prisoners. Noreen, tell us about that. All right. So we saw a similar Republican opposition in 2013 when LGBT protections were first added. Particularly, this bill would um, require the Federal Bureau of Prisons to consider the prisoner's gender ad- identification when assigning them to a male or female facility. It would also require the agency to issue rules to expand on those protections, including specifying an officer couldn't physically examine a prisoner to t- determine their sex. The bill also includes language on access to housing assistance for victims of domestic and dating violence. Um, Tell us about that. Right. So victims can't be denied federal housing assistance if someone in their household is a perpetrator of any of those crimes, including drug-related offenses. Victims would also be able to terminate a lease early without penalty. And finally, federal agencies would have to develop emergency transfer policies to place a victim in another housing unit if necessary. The bill would authorize about $20 million annually through fiscal 2024 for those um, policies. Yeah, and the only thing I would add there is this has been something that a lot of groups have been pushing for for a long time is these sorts of protections and federal benefit programs where you have a, a victim of, of domestic violence whose spouse or, or significant other has you know committed crimes either against them or, or someone else, and, and they then become homeless as a result of that person's eviction or be, uh, being, you know, they're caught up in that, that sort of legal proceeding. And, and this is something that would afford them some protection if, it, if it's enacted. So um, something that I, I think some of the, the advocates for VAWA and expanding its protections can, can kind of plant a flag on. The House is planning to vote on this as a standalone bill. Meanwhile, in the Senate, they're planning to extend VAWA without some of these new provisions as part of its disaster aid package, a move that House Democrats oppose. Adam, with that dynamic, what happens next? That is the question, I think. Um, with the Senate, they're going to do a in the disaster aid package, they have a clean extension, so it would just continue the, the VAWA programs as they are now, and then, you know, they they would hope to sort of negotiate another, you know, version of this bill that, that maybe softens the red flag provisions or, you know, to get Republicans to buy in or, you know, or takes out some of the LGBT protections that Democrats have also sought. Um, it's really not clear exactly what the final product will be. On the Senate side, um, Senators Feinstein of California and and Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa are sort of negotiating and working on a bill that Judiciary Chairman Senator Lindsey Graham said that he would accept. You know, he has voiced his opposition to the House bill. Um, So, you know, we'll have to see where they land. But I I would say that, you know, in the last 
uh, debate over Wawa, like Noreen said, with the the sort of expansion of tribal jurisdiction over crimes committed on uh, tribal lands, as well as some of the the broader LGBT provisions. You know, most, a lot of that made it through despite some opposition. So I, I would expect, you know, that the Democrats are sort of looking at that and thinking they'll be more successful than not in in this debate. So, uh, you know, there's an in, some interesting dynamics to play out, but we'll just kind of have to wait and see. Thanks, Adam and Noreen. Find Noreen's bill summary and the rest of Bloomberg government's coverage of the measure at BGov.com. We'll be right back to look at the latest for the Affordable Care Act. It's been a little while since we've had occasion to talk health care on this podcast, but that changed with word last week that the Justice Department is asking a federal appeals court to invalidate the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. Danielle Parnas covers health care for the BGov legislative analyst team, so she and Adam Shake have traded places for this segment. Also joining us in studio is Alex Ruoff, Bloomberg government's senior health care reporter. Welcome back, Alex. Good to be back. So when we had you on last, Alex, uh, a federal district court judge has said that all of the ACA should be struck down following Congress's decision to end the tax penalty for not having health insurance under the individual mandate. What's happened since then? Uh, Well, the biggest thing or kind of the most important part of this is the administration has come back and told the courts it pretty much agrees with the judge and says, you know, the courts should strike down pretty much the whole of the health care law. That, um, you know, in a larger legal sense, doesn't have a huge implications for the case, but it is a big change in the posture, particularly for a Republican administration to sort of say the law itself should just be tossed out whole cloth by a court. So what would happen exactly if the ACA is struck down? Well, it sort of depends on how a court would phrase it. But one of the big fears is that they would agree with the administration and toss the law out, you know, all of it, basically to say that the whole law is is invalid, pretty much agreeing with the Texas judge. If that's the case, it has huge implications for the healthcare industry as a whole. You know, the Affordable Care Act, we're almost a decade into it, has, I mean, it's touched so much of healthcare. It's It's baked in at this point. Oh, yeah. I mean, it touches drug policy. It establishes the biosimilars program. It's not just the individual healthcare market. It has, I mean, this huge sweeping touch to all of healthcare. If just essentially pulled out, a lot of analysts basically said it would kind of really upset uh, pretty much every part of the healthcare markets. Yeah, you mentioned uh, some of the drug-related provisions, but what about the benefits, Danielle, that would be lost if it were struck down? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of one of the the key parts of the law that's become really popular are those things like the pre-existing condition protections and things like allowing your kids to stay on your plan till age 26. Uh, there's also things like the Medicaid expansion, the subsidies that people get for buying insurance on the AC marketplace, and then all the other things that it touches like Medicare payments and even some um, employer-sponsored insurance. So it's pretty wide-ranging. Oh, yeah. I mean, another thing to note here is that most of the administrative administration's drug pricing proposals are based on an ACA provision, a way that lets them, you know, mess with Medicare payments. That goes away, too. It's, it's, I mean, this law is huge, and it touches so much. The House is scheduled to vote on a resolution condemning the Justice Department's move to side with the lower court judge. On this one, Danielle, tell us about this resolution. 
Well, it's essentially just expressing the sense of the House that, you know, this is a bad move and that the Justice Department should reverse itself and and not sort of attack the health care law. It's a non-binding resolution, so it's not going to force them to do anything. But this is, you know, another tool that Democrats have just to put their uh, position out there. It also highlights, you know, some of the things that would be struck down if this decision was upheld, like those popular um, benefits and, and other changes from the Affordable Care Act. And President Trump has called on Republicans to create their own plan, even as that many of them have, have opposed this move by the Justice Department. What does that plan look like, if anything? That's anyone's guess. There is a bit of confusion on this space, and it does not appear that the Republican Party particularly Republicans in Congress, are on the same page here. The president has repeatedly said that there's a plan coming, that there's this sort of sweeping idea. And it appears at this point that he's sort of trying to push the party along onto the way that he approaches health care, which is sort of trying to own it as an issue that they can remold, that they can sort of take on to themselves. Whereas, you know, most Republicans, particularly prominent Republicans in Congress, do not want to discuss Obamacare or health care in general. It's not, you know, I think they know what kind of thumping they took politically a couple of years, you know, after the repeal bill failed, and they're not eager to take that back up. And, you know, the moves by the administration and the president's comments recently have been this sense of the White House kind of pushing them to come up with a plan to sort of try to retake, you know, health care, particularly Obamacare, as an issue that they can lead on. And, you know, when you talk to members of Congress about it, they're less excited about taking that on. So Mark Short, uh, who's a aide to the vice president, said that the White House is going to have a plan. Some congressional Republicans say that they have some plans. But I'll tell you right now, no one has a good plan for this. If they had an Obamacare replacement plan, we would have seen it a couple of years ago. And what they have right now really is, you know, a debate amongst themselves to see what they can do and, you know, kind of where they go from here. I get the sense they do not want to see the lawsuit become successful. It sounds like the White House might be sending a set of principles to Republicans in Congress saying these are the things we want a health care law to do, similar to what they did with the tax bill in the last Congress. We don't know what those principles are going to look like at this point either, do we? No. Uh, I mean, they've been told to make a great plan, a plan that works well, and a plan that protects people. Um, so if they weren't already trying to do that, then I think they're in hotter water than uh, we thought they were in. Everything I've talked, I mean, you know, I talked to Mark Meadows last week. He's close with the president. He talks to the White House all the time. He was the most optimistic about the idea they could get together and hash some issue out, you know, that they've been working on. But yeah, even he said the White House does not going to come up with this as themselves. The White House is not going to formulate this policy, you know, and he put a lot of the pressure basically on the Senate. Over the weekend, I supposedly Rick Scott and Mitt Romney are on this, but it's really unclear. On the other side of the aisle, Democrats introduced a bill last week to improve the ACA on several fronts. One of those is premiums. Danielle, what's happening there? Yeah, so this is part of Democrats' plans to, um, you know, boost the ACA through various different mechanisms. You know, as you mentioned, one of them would um, expand the premiums that people get for enrolling um, on the ACA. You know, one of the issues is that currently if you don't get subsidies for your premiums, they can be pretty high and uh, a lot of people still can't afford them. So this bill would basically make the subsidies available to, to more people. They would make them more generous. And then the bill also would sort of tackle the individual marketplace in different ways, like creating um, a reinsurance program that would help 
cover the cost of uh, sicker enrollees and just put more funding into it for things like outreach and enrollment and the Navigator program that helps people sign up in, in different states. The bill would also push back on a number of Trump administration rules that Democrats say weaken Obamacare, right? Yeah, the administration put out several rules essentially expanding health plans that don't have to comply with the Affordable Care Act. And so Democrats say that sort of weakens things like the pre-existing condition protections and other consumer protections from the law. Alex, is it safe to assume this is a non-starter in the Senate? Uh, yeah, as long as Mr. Connell is picking what goes on the floor, this won't wage that. I think it's also interesting going back to the conversation of, you know, what's been feasible in the past. It's not just the Republican proposals and the, you know, Democratic proposals that probably aren't going anywhere. But we've also seen these bipartisan pushes um, sort of fail over various issues. There was the Alexander Murray push that included a reinsurance program and revamping the state waivers that also, you know, basically got sidelined. So it's really hard to see sort of any path forward on, on Obamacare at this point. Thanks, Danielle and Alex. As always, find their work on BGov.com. That's all for this week. We'll talk to you again next time. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find more on the subjects we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.begov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information on that can be found at premiumbeat.com.